Let's pray together. We've got a lot of ground to cover. And, and maybe it's a little more upbeat than suicide, uh, euthanasia, abortion. That was a rough schedule last week. But, uh, you know, we've got things like sex to talk about tonight. Much more upbeat topics, um, which may have the inverse effect on us. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, let's pray. Let's pray for God's help. We certainly need that. God, we do thank you for the Thursday nights that we have, that we've set aside, that you've allowed us to set aside and clear for this topic of anthropology. And we're going to shift soon into studying sin in the fall and all the effects of that. And some of these topics, like the ones tonight, will be bifurcated. We'll have uh, one side of the discussion tonight, and then after we deal with sin, we'll deal with a lot of other issues that need to be dealt with because they are headline issues in our news every day, and so we'll get to those. But tonight, as we look at these pre-fall commands and the things that you've said to us about human relationships, I pray that we would have a great time gleaning from your word. Give us insight that we didn't have when we came in. Allow us to think deeply about these things, even if a lot of this uh, is are, if it's topics that we are familiar with. I just pray you deepen our understanding of them, that we might be able to be firmly rooted, not swayed by the culture, by what our world says, just that basic definition of worldliness in the Bible, wanting to conform to the prevailing views of our society. Let us stand firm on your word. You've spoken. Uh, it has been that constitution, that anchor for generations uh, since the pinning of the Bible. And so we are so grateful to stand in that long heritage, and we want to make sure that our thoughts and our ideas are firmly rooted in the truth about who we are as human beings. So help us through this uh, discussion and this study tonight. Open our minds and guide our thoughts and allow us to be good Bereans tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, take your Bibles. We're going to turn to Genesis chapter 1, dealing with one more pre-fall issue here and look at on your outline uh, the command to be fruitful and multiply. That will be our opening theme here as we deal with God's command. And I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. And as we look at this text, I want to start maybe where you wouldn't expect for us to start. I want to look in verse 21. Let's start there. Verse 21. Genesis 1, 21. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and he blessed them, saying, here's the blessing, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. Letter A, let's just jot this down and understand that that concept, the phrase, be fruitful and multiply, which I think most of us just think of one-dimensionally in terms of human beings, is a very broad command in Genesis, and it begins not with us, but with the other creatures that he has created, the animate objects, uh, you know, creatures, the animate creatures, not the animate objects, the inanimate objects. Obviously, this is a different, uh, uh, you know, a different idea. But the idea of the command and the decree going out from God to these biological units that are not made in the image of God, we have the same command. So it is a, a plan for the animal kingdom, verses 21 and 22. And then I want to underscore this. Number two, as we look at verses 27 and 28, it's a unique plan, and I put that in quotes, uh, for humans. A unique plan for human beings. Now we see it, at least in terms of the text, coming first as relating to 
the creatures of the planet, the animals of the planet, the fish, the birds. But look at verse 27 now. He says, God creates man in his own image. The image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now he's going to recapitulate that story in the second chapter. We'll look at that in a little bit and get more detail about how females were created. But here in verse 28, God blessed them and he said to them, here's the same phrase, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But there's more to it as we saw a couple of weeks back to have a role of subduing the earth and having dominion over all the other creatures. Uh, as as you know, crazy as that is to the normal you know, naturalists today, you know, we're just one in this long chain. But of course, as we said, we are at the top and the pinnacle of God's creation. We're different. We're special. God has created us to subdue and have dominion over everything. The fish that he's just to- told to multiply, the birds that he's just told to multiply over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, if you looked at, and we touched on this, but we didn't elaborate on it, the distinction between these, these living creatures on the planet and then man made in the image of God, though we don't have any details on the actual creation, we just have general statements. The uniqueness of this, I just want to underscore, is in terms to the comparison to angelic beings. And I made the statement almost offhandedly, I mean, it was in my notes at least, but I tried to, to say, if you're going to think about the components of personhood, what it means to be a person created in the image of God. We looked at things, you know, from the the spectrum of creativity and all the rest, but the basic elements that you hear me rattle off all the time, even in weekend sermons, is we have intellect, emotion, and will. The ability to think rationally, think abstractly. Uh, We have an ability to feel and to respond in certain, uh, uh, you know, levels of emotion that other creatures can't. And then we have, of course, the ability to be volitional and purposeful and strategic and to do things that are different uh, in terms of the type of decision-making that we have. And we said, well, if you look at angels, right, we've got the same thing. We could say, though the Bible never puts it this way, that angels are made in the image of God with intellect, emotion, and will. And if you were with us in the angelology study, we spell all that out and we show that. Well, that's clearly the way they're described in the Bible. But in terms of angels... If you think about this, the unique thing about human beings is that in in passages like Psalm 148, verses 2 through 5, the Bible says things about angels like this. Praise him, all his angels, okay, the totality of his angels, all of them. Praise him, all his hosts, all the armies of the angels. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heaven, you waters above the heavens. Let them praise The name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. What was created? Well, the moon and the stars and the the sun and all the angels. So we have God creating these beings that are in his image. And you might want to argue even more than we are in at least one dimension in that they're spirit beings and not spiritual and material. They're not, you know, God is not biological, not until the incarnation, The Son of God is biological now. But before that, angels could say, well, we share more in common with God than you do. And yet, here's the very distinct difference. They never, ever had a command to be fruitful and multiply. There's no no procreation because they were all created, as this passage suggests, all at one time. Job 38, verses 4 through 7, makes it clear that this was all before the material world was created. Where were you? God asks Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth, 
when the morning stars, that's one of the nicknames, if you will, for the angels, sang together and all the sons of God, the Ben Elohim, that little phrase, Ben Elohim, sons of God, used distinctly, though someone said this week, uh, you know, people are called that. They're not called that. There's no person with that phrase, Ben Elohim, uh, referred to. Uh, you know, no human being has that appellation, that title. That's a title for the angelic beings. And so we have them there shouting for joy, cheering on the creation of the world, giving praise to God because he's making the material world. So before the material world, we have the creation of beings in God's image, all created at one time. Matthew chapter 25 verse 41 says, that when the time of judgment comes, he will separate people, human beings, and he will say, depart from me, those on his left, you cursed ones, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So the fallen angels go to a place that are consigned to punishment. And as the Bible says at the great white throne judgment, we have them being there day and night forever and ever. So they have a eternal, right, continuation of their lives that had a beginning at one time that was before the material world was created. So everyone was created at one time, no procreation, no ongoing creation of angelic beings. Matthew twenty-two thirty. try to merge a little bit of this in our topics tonight, speaks of the resurrection when they tried to come and trick him about a question about someone who has multiple wives in their lifetime at the resurrection, whose wife, um, you know, who's going, to be, who's going to be paired up here with all these multiple marriages? Uh, and he said in the resurrection, they, that is human beings, human people, neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like the angels in heaven. Now, there's a lot to that connection that we'll try to put together, that the procreation of the human race is tied to this thing called marriage. That's the important connection in the Bible. And when it comes to angelic beings, they don't pair up. They don't pair up like we pair up, and they certainly don't pair up to procreate because there's no ongoing creation of people in the image of God, which is an amazing thing if you think about it. And if you're an angelic being, all you can do is look back to the miracle of creation when God spoke your entire army into existence. We get to have maternity wards when these little babies are born, and we marvel at the fact when someone says they're pregnant and this child is coming into the world, here's this amazing creation of a human being in the image of God happening all the time. And the gestation and the maturation and the growing up of these people, it's very unique. It's like the animal kingdom, but it's unique because we have people in the image of God multiplying before our eyes. Be fruitful and multiply. It's not only a broad command, which is unique to us in the image of God, unlike the angels. It's also a general command. And I just want you to look at verse 28 again. It says in verse 28, God blessed them, said to them, man and woman, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. Okay, now this is going to become foundational and we'll prove this. This command resonates throughout the Bible. And we go back to this initial command to be fruitful and multiply. But in this context of commands, these are commands that are in the context of a series of broad commands. Human beings are to be fruitful and multiply. And certainly Adam and Eve, being the first recipients of this, had to do this. this is, you know, there's no way around that. But when it comes to the other commands that surround this, you start to get a sense that these are kind of the, the constitutional, foundational commands for everything. Because if you look at that, you think, well, it's not even possible for any human being to actually do all that's said here. 
have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air. I could say to you, as someone wanting to be obedient to Christ, I guess then you have an aviary and you have a, you know, you have a, uh, you know, you have a, uh, what do you call them, aquarium, aquarium, and you, you know, are you exercising your dominion over fish this week? You know, or what have you done in your life to exercise your dominion over birds? See, you, you haven't done that, but as human beings, you say, as a part of humanity, we've done that. So we are exercising that dominion over every living thing on the earth. See, there are things on the earth we still haven't even discovered, right? In in deep sea exploration, there's stuff that we're still finding. Wow, we didn't even know that thing existed, that creature. So there are still aspects of this that you could say, well, these are general commands regarding humanity. They need to be fruitful and multiply, and they need to exercise dominion. And then what he says next, look at this, verse 29 I said 28 here, but I meant 29. Sorry. He said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. Question, how are you doing on the knockdown list of eating all the fruit on the planet that has seed in it that God has provided for you to eat? You shall have them for food. Have you? I mean... I doubt it. I doubt anybody's even purposing to do it. But you look at humanity, and you're saying, okay, I get it. The breadth of the command, and I get the, the genu- generality of the command. See? I'm saying it because that's a very important principle that we'll come back to revisit. Okay? We'll look at that. Because you could say, are there exceptions to being fruitful and multiply? Are there exceptions to food you don't eat? Are there exceptions to dominion over certain creatures that you just don't exercise, and you still are an obedient Christian, in our case, a new covenant follower of Christ. Just keep that in mind. We'll come back to that. It's a general command. It's a broad command. And, of course, it's a restated command. And I'll add this. For humanity, it is not only a restated command, but it is a restated command so that it creates a general expectation for all human beings. Okay? And, and again, we know it's a general command. And we'll look at the exceptions. Okay. Let's just, I'll give you some examples here. Did I put numbers? I did. After the flood. That would make sense because it's like, okay, now Noah, you've got to do this and your kids have to do this because we're starting over here. Genesis 8, 16 and 70, go out of the ark, you and your wife, your sons and your son's wives with you, bring out with you every living thing that is with you, all the flesh, the birds, the animal, every creeping thing that creeps on the ground, that they may swarm the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. We need these animals to multiply to be fruitful and multiply. And you, next chapter, a few verses later, God blessed Noah. Here's the same kind of of terminology. Blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, you guys now, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, because the earth's been wiped out. Promises he's not going to wipe it again with a big worldwide flood, but he says, now we need to get to having children. Fill the earth. And then I just added this for the sake of completeness, because I don't know when we'll get back to this in our anthropology study. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the flesh of the sea. That was not a pre-diluvian, an anti-diluvian, a pre-flood reality. The animals didn't have that. Now they do. Now they scurry from you unless they're domesticated animals or sick or weird or, you know, backed into a corner or whatever. 
right? Into your hands they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And there's so much to this, by the way, and, and I wish we had time um, to go into all the things that you can pick up from the pre-Diluvian world and the post-Diluvian world and say there are so many hints to what actually happened in the radical shift in the world that we have, including this new hunting thing that just happened. Now the animals are scared of you, and you get to go chase them down, and you get to eat them. Why is that? Why do we need to eat that? What, what, how, how, did you, were you holding out steak from us before the flood? Was that just being mean to us? Or was there some reason now we need to do that because the world is so radically different? I'm just hinting at a few things there that are important the more you look at this. If we had more time for that, we'd talk about it. Anyway, now, go eat steak, okay? You, uh, and, and then he goes on and he says in verse 7, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So you need to multiply and you need to have children, okay? More expectation here throughout the Bible. Genesis 35, 11. This is number two. We not only see it after the flood, which you would expect because we're starting over basically with Adam and Eve, you know, and in this case, Ham, Sham, and Japheth and their wives. You've got now four couples and they got to have lots of babies because we got to repopulate the world. Well, then many years later, we got... The patriarchs, Jacob, who's just renamed here in chapter 35, Israel, that's his new name, which becomes the name of the nation, of course. God says to Israel or to Jacob, I am the mighty God, be fruitful and multiply. We need you now, you want to be very specific in the context, as one of the leaders here of the nation, we need you as a patriarch to be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. So we got to have you having children Go and do that. Now let's get even broader still. So we got Adam and Eve. We got the second Adam and Eve. And I don't mean that in the theological sense. Christ, of course, is the second Adam. But we kind of got this reset on the world. And so Noah and Ham, Sham, and Japheth, they've all got to repopulate the world. And now in Deuteronomy 20, and we have the patriarchs. We've got to build this nation, the nation of Israel. In Deuteronomy 28, he says, okay, guys, you're going to go into the land. Just before they go into the land. And if you're faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, and you're careful to do all of his commandments that I command you today, then the Lord will set you high above the nations of the earth. And, verse 4 says, so many good blessings he gives there, but he says, blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, and the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Do well, and you will be fruitful and multiply. And if you keep my commandments, that will be something that I will bless you with, a continuing increase and multiplication of human beings in your nation. Jeremiah 29.6. Jeremiah 29.6. Now they're being hauled off. You know Jeremiah comes at the end of the fall of the southern kingdom, 586 B.C. We're going off to Babylon as exiles, and the command comes in Genesis, Genesis 29. Hey, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Now here's our phrase again. Multiply there and do not decrease. Keep having children. The ongoing command and expectation. I know you're getting hauled off to, to exile, but that command always should resonate among the people. And then you want to get real general here. Proverbs 17, 6, right? The whole idea of the Proverbs gives us, when it intersects with things like family, hey, having kids and having grandkids, that's just, that's the crown of just getting old, is looking down the line and saying, I've got kids and grandkids. It's the crown of the aged, and I didn't have to throw this in, but... Uh, I will, because I'm a dad. The glory of children is their fathers, or at least it should be. 
So you can talk to my kids about that. I try to quote this verse to them regularly. Uh, anyway, uh, verse uh, one, one, Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5. Of course, we quote this one a lot at child dedications or whatever, but I mean, think of the principle here. Children are a heritage from the Lord. This is what he wants to give. Children, the fruit of the womb, are a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are children of one's youth now. You know this quote, and sometimes we smile at it at baby dedications when someone's, you know, dedicating their fourth kid. But look at what it says. Blessed, you want to talk about the blessing? Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with the children, right? Whose quiver is full of them. Whole arsenal of people to launch into the future. This command to be fruitful and multiply from the very beginning is not just, oh, Adam and Eve, if you don't have kids, you know, if you want to live the single life, I know that would be really cool. I don't mean the single life, but the, uh, you know, childless life. Uh, you got to do that because we really need more people on the planet. That's not the expectation here. And it wasn't like Noah. Hey, you know what? If you don't get to having kids, it'll be really sparse on the planet. So it'd be good if you got, got to business here and had some children. That's not it. This is the ongoing expectation for all humanity. Have children. Be fruitful and multiply. It is the restated command and expectation. And it will be in the millennium. <laughs> if, you're eschat- if you share your eschatology with me, and you believe that there will be a reconstitution of the nation of Israel, and that God will send his son to set up a physical kingdom to now in great detail fulfill all the promises to the nation, and the repeated, right, seven times over, repeated phrase of this thousand-year reign is coming, and it's going to be on earth before the eternal state, then you read passages like this, and you hear that same resonance of the command. Ezekiel 36, 8 through 11. He says, now personifying the hills around Israel, O mountains of Israel, they shall shoot forth your branches, you shall shoot forth your branches, and yield fruit for my people Israel, for they will soon come home. For behold, I am for you, I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown, and I will multiply people on you. The whole house of Israel, all of it, the city shall be inhabited, and the waste places rebuilt, and I will multiply on you man and beast, and they shall multiply, here's our phrase again, inverted, and, and be fruitful. And I will cause you to be inhabited as in former times and will do more good to you than ever before. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Now, again, if you piece together your eschatology and you say, yeah, that's after a, a battle of Armageddon. It's a terrible bloodbath. And now we reconstitute a nation and we have these people that have come through the tribulation now that are setting up a nation. And they are now, again, characterized for a thousand years by being fruitful and multiplying. We're not, by the way. Uh, as a part of the church age here, at least in my theology. No, we have resurrected bodies, glorified bodies at this point. Even if we're there until the beginning of the tribulation, we get changed in a twinkling of an eye. Mortal puts on immortality, and we then, in the resurrection, with a resurrection body, don't pair up and procreate. But in the millennial kingdom, the Israelites do pair up and, and procreate. All right. Right? It's the command, broad command, it's a command that's a general command, but it's a general command that is binding and reemphasized, restated, and expected for all humanity. The context, of course, is marriage. The context, of course, I guess I have to say that because it's not so much a, of course anymore, but the context for having children and procreating and being fruitful and multiplying is marriage. Okay? Genesis chapter 2. 
you still have Genesis open, let's look across the page at chapter 2 and the recapitulation, the retelling, the unpacking of the story, which is the pattern in Genesis. People try to build theology on the fact that we see the story stated and then it's restated. Careful, that's how that works, especially through Genesis. You get the statement of a story and the unpacking of the story, another aspect of the story. So in chapter 2, we have again, look down to verse 21, we have this accounting of male and female. He created them, but now we get details about how this comes to be. Verse 21, the Lord shall cause a deep sleep to fall upon the man. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs. This is very bizarre. Why would you do that? Okay. You can make a lot of poetic assumptions about this, but whatever it is, he's trying to show this is different. This is special. This is not like everything else I've created. And he closed up that place with flesh and the rib that the Lord had taken from the man. He crafted, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Why? Because looking for friendship among the animals, right? Dr. Doolittle didn't work. So now I see a compatible helper, a companion, a partner. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24. Therefore, now remember, we don't have, we got Adam and Eve. We don't have parents. Moses writing in 1440 BC now steps back and says, Hey guys, listen readers in the 15th century before Christ. Just know that this account of what happened here tells us why we do what we do. Therefore, a man shall, a zub, A-Z-U-B, shall leave, forsake, desert, abandon, neglect, refuse, ignore, leave his father and mother. I say that for the mother-in-laws or future mother-in-laws in the room. That didn't get a laugh because it's too painful for you, is it not? Your child shall leave, azub, forsake, desert, abandon, neglect, refuse, ignore, leave you, his father and mother. And then he shall, debak, he shall hold fast, cling, stick to, be stuck to, used in ancient languages, to solder or meld together different metals, to, to, to glue, to, gel, to meld, to fuse together. I mean, in a negative, it's sometimes described in lexicon as not being able to escape. I'm going to talk about the ball and chain. There it is. And it is welded hard to your life. You have a relationship now that is stuck, super glued, fastened, gorilla glued to your life, to his wife, and they shall become one. And the man and the wife are both naked and not ashamed. Okay? Let's glean a few things from this text. Number one, it's intended to be a permanent union. It's intended to be a permanent union. If the world has messed something up, it's that description right there of a zub and debak. We got those turned around. We have in people's minds a kind of relationship with their children as some kind of romanticized permanence that the Bible never intended. Never intended. You are headed for a divorce with your children. That's what the Bible designed. And at some point, it's not, you know, it's amicable. Okay, it's supposed to be friendly. But they're supposed to leave. They're supposed to go. They're supposed to forsake. They're supposed to sever and separate from you and that parent relationship And then they're supposed to go and cleave and and be soldered to, melded to, fused to a new relationship. And every time our pastors here, we do uh, premarital counseling, one one of the sessions, at least one, and maybe two sessions, is all about dealing with in-laws, right? Because that is always a problem, and increasingly so in our society. Because the assumption of the permanence of a special kind of relationship between parent and child, when in reality there's a kind of severing 
It's not mean. It's not nasty. It's not angry. It's not hostile. It's not supposed to be. But it's a real profound leaving and cleaving that replaces everything about how that person views themselves. A permanent union. And if you want something to put an exclamation point on that, how about Jesus Let's have the one who died for your sins, rose from the dead, and now has all the glory that he had before the incarnation with eyes like fire, out of his mouth a sharp two-edged sword. He said this about the, about the relationship. The Pharisee said, hey, is it okay if we take this melded, fused relationship and break it apart? Is it okay? Is it lawful to divorce uh, one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Complementary kinds of human beings, genders, types. Therefore, a man shall leave. Now, this is in Greek, of course. He's quoting the passage, though, in Genesis 2.24. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast, cling to, be fused to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. Haven't you read that? They're no longer two. They've become one. One flesh. What therefore, here it is, Christ's word, what God has joined together. Something profound here. Let, let man, let not man separate. Together, not separatable. You can't separate it. Here's the idea of marriage being a permanent union. Are there exceptions? We can talk about exceptions, but that's not what I want to talk about right now. We'll talk about that on the other side of the fall. When we get to the fall, on the, we'll talk about that. But I want to talk right now about the rule. Everyone wants to talk about exceptions. Exceptions only prove the rule. You understand that? Those are exceptions to the rule. The rule is, and we don't hear it enough in today's society because pastors are too afraid of hurting people's feelings because in a room like this, we got divorced people here. I understand that. But let me teach about marriage. It is intended to be a permanent union. That's what God designed. Okay? <laughs> it's so sad. It's not sad. It's God's design. Number two, designed to be a sexual union. There's that weird statement about one flesh, and then right on the heels of that, they're both naked, and they're not ashamed. Ooh, sexual union. Notice it's the word not, I changed the verb. It's not intended to be. It's designed to be. Now, again, on the other side of the fall, when we deal with sin and after that, then we'll deal with issues of all kinds of things. We'll deal with homosexuality. We'll deal with polygamy. We'll deal with all sorts of things that we just can't get to tonight. Okay? But when it comes to the idea of the design of God, just in terms of natural revelation, natural law, right? the whole design of this was for there to be a sexual union, and that's just a biological design. That's God's biological design. It was in his intention, and it is throughout the Bible celebrated as the norm. It's the point. Song of Solomon, we just read it in our daily Bible reading. I mean, it's odd that you would have an entire book in a theological library with only 66 books in it, that one of the books would be devoted to sex, right? Which really, I mean, it's a lot of romance, and it's, of course, it's... 10th century BC romance, so it doesn't read that well to you, I understand. But the ideas of what's being said in this passage, or this book rather, and all these passages about sexual union, I mean, it speaks highly of that in, in God's book. How about a couple statements from 1 Corinthians 5? Let me just completely remove all the romance out of this concept right, right here in this text. 1 Corinthians 7 verses 3 through 5. Look at the way this is translated even. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights. Sounds like a visit to the penitentiary, right? 
what are you talking about? Now, the words here, unfortunately, in English just don't carry the strength that they do if you've got your Greek New Testament in front of you. Should give, that, that, even that phrase, apodidomai, should give. It's, it's a sense of something of, of requirement, of, of contractual requirement. It has the, I told you all the romance would be taken out of this. But here's the idea. The concept of a sexual union in a marriage, right, is like a basic contractual, ought to, obligatory, this is the point, at least in large part, for two human beings coming together and pairing up on planet Earth. This isn't about friends, not just about being, you know, roommates. You want a roommate, go get a roommate, don't get married. The idea of a sexual union is a huge part of the whole pulling together of two people, man and woman, in a relationship, and they now have an obligation, conjugal rights. There's the other word. And that word we see, and I always pull it out when it comes up in our sanctification for obedience, it's the word debt. We have a debt. We have to pay the debt. We have a, 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 a promissory note. We have to pay on this. It's not optional. It is required. And I don't care what's going on in your life, right? The idea in this text makes clear the foundation of male-female marriage right, has to include this sexual union. And likewise, it goes both ways, the wife to her husband. He's got conjugal rights, if you want to call it that, which I don't know why the ESV translated it that way. I can think of his prison visits, but I get it. Sucked all the romance out of the idea with that translation. For the wife does not have authority over her own body. Whoa, it's terrible. The husband does. Wow, really? Yes, and it works both ways. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. And in a room this size with this many people, that's probably going on in this room. And it is sin. It is the foundation of you walking an aisle and being paired up in a relationship. A major function of that is the one flesh relationship and the nakedness of that one flesh relationship, and being sexually tied together. That's the point. It's a sexual union. You can't deprive one another. Except, there's an exception clause, by an agreement, only now, for a limited time, and here's the thing, it's not because I'm really tired of you, and we've got a lot of arguments, and we're not getting along very well. It's so that you can devote yourself to a prayer summit, right? Think about that. That's the reason. You can do it only for a time. It's got to be a limited time, a short time to devote yourself to prayer and then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because God's all about the fidelity in that relationship, may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And, and again, I, I just I can't overemphasize this enough, especially in church cultures where sometimes sex is seen so wrongly in our youth groups and youth programs and as kids, our parents raise kids with a fear, a lot of fear-based parenting. There's so many problems with fear-based parenting. But even our training our kids up with their sexual ethics because of our fear-based concerns, we end up taking the entire topic of sex and we make this, this dirty, bad, awful thing. And then we have people getting into relationships that end up in counseling within three years because we've got problems and we don't have anything that looks like 1 Corinthians chapter 7 happening in relationships, not to mention Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. If you do not have this, I don't know who I'm talking to because most of you are married, but if you're going to get married, if you do not have this as a clear part of the, the obligatory foundational part of what marriage is, then don't get married. Don't get married. This is a foundational, foundational element 
of what marriage is. It's a permanent union. If you want to, you know, try it for a few years, don't get married. If you're not interested in this being a long-term, permanent sexual relationship, then don't get married. It's also currently a legal union. It's currently a legal union. Now, this is interesting, and you have to use your imagination. Uh, I mean, we have textual hints, but if you think about this, who presided over some relation or some ceremony and what contracts were filled out with Adam and Eve? Well, you'd say, well, none. I can imagine none. And then you have Moses in 1440 BC writing the Pentateuch and saying, oh, guys, this is why we join together in a one flesh relationship in a marriage that's permanent. And we azub, you know, and we debak, we, we leave and we cling. And, and that is why we do that for life with evil. How it makes that happen? And then you have, as the question was asked of Jesus in Matthew 19, what about that certificate of divorce in Deuteronomy 24 that Moses talked? Well, who, you know, how does that all work? Who sanctions that? So you've got a distinction that I often try to make for you, that the Old Testament was written to a nation among nations, right? The Old Testament was written to a nation among nations. This is to Israel, and it functioned as a nation. That's why it has all these civil rules and judicial rules, even rules of restitution and, and cities of refuge, which were the jails of the day. All of that was an, is instruction to a nation. Then the New Testament is an international organization living in all these different jurisdictions of various governmental organizations. Old Testament, nation among nations. New Testament, international organization living under various jurisdictions of human government. So when we think about how that works, everyone has to, in their own context whether we're in Papua New Guinea or Sierra Leone or whether we're in, you know, Miami, Florida, we have to figure out what is in this jurisdiction the thing that makes me married, okay? So we always get this question, especially as pastors, right? And parents sometimes get it when kids want to say, well, you know, we're just married in our heart. Uh, You have to figure out what makes a marriage and because of passages like Romans chapter 13 in the New Testament, which we should read carefully, we have to realize that it is a legal union that is ratified in our current submission to our government when that is legally executed, in our case, through the county, uh, relegated to the state laws, etc. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. Now, here... The apostles, with the authority of Christ, are writing to the international organization. They're living under the jurisdiction of Rome. Obviously, this is written to the Romans. For There's no authority except from God. Good ones and bad ones, right? From Nero to Malachi to, you know, whatever. Whoever you want to talk about. We, we have these instituted by God. Oftentimes, not as a blessing. It seems as a punishment in some cases. But those are put there by God. And those that exist have been instituted by God, both good and bad. Therefore, whoever resists these authorities resists what God has appointed. So if I say, well, I'm going to be married my own way with my own rules, and I'm going to call myself married, and when I call myself married, then I'm married, or when I call myself not married, then I'm not married, there is now a bucking and a resistance to the will of God, which he has appointed through the governing authorities. And if you do, here's the threat. If you resist, you'll incur judgment. Now, in verse 5, it says, For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one should be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, 
which is interesting now. He just blurred with human wrath. It doesn't bear the sword for nothing. We didn't have room or time to read all of that. But Rome carries a sword, but now it's saying its wrath on you is God's wrath on you. Okay? But you should also do it for conscience sake because you know God has put you under authority. And the authority, if you were an Old Testament Israelite, you could look at, well, all of this is written to us as a nation. That's why we have civil rules. Now, we don't have civil rules in the New Testament. We're an international organization. Now, in our case, living in the United States, so we have to submit to the rules of our land. Okay? Until, and we'll look at this later in our series in anthropology, after the fall, we talk about the fall, we'll deal with sinful governments, and then how do we deal with civil disobedience, and when do we not obey the government, and we'll deal with all of that. But the idea, let me just state it simply, I write it down this way often, we are to obey our governments, except when they require us to disobey God, okay? We are to obey our governments, except when they require us to disobey God. So when it comes to marriage, if they want me to go to the county recorder's office and fill out the forms and stand in line and mail in a a form after it gets filled out by the officiant and they've got these rules about who can do it and how it's done and and, and what kind of, of, of fee I've got to pay, and then when that's done and it's signed, then they consider me in this country, in this county, in this state married, then I'm married. And I obey that. I submit to that until whatever they sanction is not something that would allow the participants to obey God. If it's a direct disobeying of God, we'll get into all the details of that. Therefore, and I still get asked this not just by young people, but by older people, you know, you are married when the state says you're married. That may not be. Notice the word currently. That may change. Watch all the machinations. You talk about homosexual, you know, marriage and all of that, which is really not what the homosexual movement wants. I think, you know, in time we'll see it's the abolition of marriage. And if that happens on a national level, uh, in terms of civil society in our country, then it will, it will have to relegate it to the obedient people within the community of God, sanctioning within the authority of the church to legally marry people. And it will be legal, at least in terms, I, I say, sanctioned. I should say that. Divinely sanctioned. It will be sanctioned as it would be in a lot of places I've been in missions, trips, and elsewhere where, you know, it's all about the, the chief and the tribe or exchanging goats or whatever it is that happens that makes it official without some big governmental intrusion. But for now, it's still a legal union. Do you, you understand why I say all that? It'll come, I think, back to us when we get to the aberrations in a future lecture. Now, let me get to where I start where I started. Let me get back to where I started and where I'm hoping to go with a lot of this tonight. As controversial as this sounds as a 21st century, you know, person, I was going to say pastor, but I guess that's true too. too. Pastors aren't saying much of this anymore, but it's intended to letter D be a godly union. What is marriage? Permanent union, sexual union, legal union for now. A godly union to raise godly kids. Okay, this now I'm going to put together these be fruitful and multiply commands with the foundational framework, which is marriage, and let's see how this all comes together. Here's an eye opening passage for you on the screen Malachi chapter 2, verse 15. And because this is post exilic times, I mean, this isn't even the exile, this isn't the, you know, coming off the ark, this is not in the garden. I mean, this is a helpful passage that I think should be broadly understood. He's chiding the people in the post-exilic period for divorce. That's the passage. 
But then he starts explaining this, talking about male and female in a marriage relationship. Did he not make them one? Just like we saw Jesus saying, what God has joined together, don't let people say, we know you chose to do it. We know you willingly participate in it, but God is putting people together. And so from God's perspective in verse 15, he makes these two people, husband and wife, one in his mind. Now this is a bizarre and this is a notoriously difficult Hebrew section of the Bible, by the way. Those of you that studied Hebrew, some of you are just now taking Hebrew, I know, because we've talked about it. Uh, this passage you'll never find in your exercise books. This is a tough section of the scripture, but, and you'll see it variously translated, but I think this phrase, interesting translation, and perhaps exactly what we're dealing with here, a portion of the Spirit, capital S, look at this. He makes them one, and what he's doing is making that miracle of two becoming one, the thing that is the act of God. It's a kind of, of the spiritual, you know, sanctioning of two. It's, it's the whole file cabinet's changing in God's mind. Two people now become one because the Spirit has an application in that ceremony with a portion of, a, of the Spirit in their unit. Didn't he make them one? And what was, was the one God seeking? What did God want? Okay? Godly offspring. Now, that's an interesting way to put it. When we're not there with the pressure of an empty earth with, you know, Ham, Sham, and Japheth and Noah and his wife, or in the garden, or going into exile, make sure you just don't, you know, pitter away there with a low birth rate and disappear. We have here, post-exilic times, lots of people, and he's saying... I'm making you guys one in a marriage relationship. Why? Because I, I want godly offspring. I don't want you divorcing. I don't want you breaking this relationship because I want you to do this thing that resonated through the Bible from beginning through the millennium, and that is be fruitful and multiply. So keep those marriages together. Guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Stay married. Have children. <laughs> as fundamental as that is, to old-time Christian preaching. It seems to be a rare thing said from pulpits today, certainly I would think in Orange County pulpits. Marriage, permanent union, sexual union, legal union, and a union that God designed in which children should be made and raised differently than the rest of the world. Example, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, at least a good section of it. If in the command of God and in the economy of God, children are to obey their parents, and even in godless homes, that's what they generally do, to some extent at least. It says that's the right thing to do. Like the law says, honor your father and mother. It's the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. That's the promise going into the land of Canaan. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So, Parents are all going to raise their kids with some, no, 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 don't do that, discipline, and some instruction, go do that, coaching and, and directing. But non-Christians do that in a different way than Christians do. Christians, right, we have an, an instruction here from God in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So you're going to raise your kids differently. And as you raise those kids differently with the constitution of God's word as your guide, you're going to be doing exactly what Malachi 2 says. You're going to be producing kids that are qualitatively different than the rest of the world. They're going to be godly offspring. He says to his people in the Old Testament in Malachi, a nation among nations, hey, stay together. Have good, solid marriages. Make that a good platform. Be fruitful and multiply. I want godly kids coming out of these unions. Now here, he says in the international organization living among all the jurisdictions of the world, hey, children, obey your parents, speaking to one of the churches here, the outposts of the international organization, the kingdom. Listen, be sure you train them carefully. 
in the discipline, things you tell them not to do, and the instruction, the things that you coach them to do, do that in the Lord. When that's done, 1 Corinthians 7, 13, and 14 adds an interesting layer to all this. Hey, if you've got a really bad marriage, it says, hey, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and if you can keep that thing together, keep it together. Because if he consents to live with her, right, then she shouldn't divorce him. I mean, if, he, if he's willing to stay there, then, then don't, don't write him off and don't leave. For the unbelieving husband is made, quote unquote, holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife, if you were to turn the scenario around, is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Now, nothing I can do with someone who's not obedient to God by me hanging out with them, make them righteous in terms of ethical or moral behavior. I might have some influence on them. But the Bible uses that word holy to be set apart. Literally, that's what it means. Often with an ethical overtone that I'm not like everybody else. And in God's economies, he looks down at families and I've got a Christian spouse and a non-Christian spouse, one that obeys God and one that follows God and one that does not obey God and does not follow God. He looks at that unit, that family, because the two have become one. And he says, now you're an appendage to the one that is set apart for my family. That partner now has some level, some aspect, some dimension of being set apart now as I view them. There is some kind of, uh, you know, we talk about guilt by association. There's some kind of credit by association here. And your kids, right? Now, because of that family, they're also set apart. There's also some aspect of being set apart. I don't think this is salvific. That would make no sense and contradict half of the Bible. I guess not, you know, I'm not saved by someone else's actions. I can't be saved by proxy, right? My kids can't be saved by proxy. But there's something that God says, and from his perspective, something that God determines or views from his perspective that sees this differently. And again, this is about marriages as the platform to raise godly kids. Kids that are different, kids that are set apart, kids that I trust come to the place of repentance and faith because they've been trained in the way to go, and when they're old, they don't depart from it. Context is marriage. All right, number three, backside. Looks like a lot more stuff on there, but it'll go faster. Talk about the current state of marriage. The current state of marriage. It's an increasingly bypassed institution. It's an increasingly bypassed institution. And if our, and I'm not a prognosticator, you know, I'm not a trends guy, I'm not George Barna, I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm, a, I'm just telling you, the, the move away from marriage in our culture only looks like it's going to get worse until, perhaps, we don't have marriage as some kind of sanctioned governmental thing. Just look at some of the stats. In 1959, of adults now, 70% of all adults were married. Okay? Think about that. I mean, some of you were alive then. <laughs> I feel good because I'm 50 and I wasn't alive then. So anyway, yeah. All my old... I, I, you, I'm not trying to say you're old, but you're older than me if you were alive in 1959. I wasn't alive. I wouldn't even have thought at that point. I wouldn't have thought in 1963. So anyway, okay. Well, I have to ask my parents about that. I don't know. Maybe I was a thought. 70% of adults were married. Okay? Today. What do you think that is? 
50. 50%. Just look at that precipitous fall in terms of adults that are married. Now, that's just saying you walk up to an adult, are you married? used to be you'd only have 30% say no. Now you'd have half the people today saying no. In 1960, okay, because you could have a lot of old people that are widowed or widowers. Well, just the working class people, people in the working class that have jobs, 84% of the working class were married in 1960, okay? Today, 48%. Look at that shift, 84 to 48 just in, in one generation. 1940, 4% of the kids were born out of wedlock. Now, you, you know, I'm going to update this stat for you. Are you ready? 4% of the kids, out of 100 kids on the playground at the school, a school with 100 people, four of them were born outside of marriage. They may, parents may have gotten married a year later, may have gotten married two days later. But when that child was born... Those parents weren't married. Today, 41%. 41%. Well, I know what this is. Those teenagers are having so much sex and having all those babies out of wedlock. This is not an adolescent epidemic. Only 7% of children born out of wedlock today are two teenagers. Now think that through. That means a purposeful dismission, right, a, a dismissiveness uh, of marriage. I mean, that certainly, one of the things that points to that. Marriage is an increasingly bypassed institution. And if you think about it, I mean, if you really, I don't know what kind of person you are, but if you think about it, if really that you, you were not a theist and you were not a Christian, I, I mean, and as most, well, I've got to be careful here. You could see where in your fleshly thoughts. Why, you know, hey, if marriage, I could see where, why would, we, why would we bother with all that? And that's where our secular society is quickly trending to that spot. Now, of course, the Bible's different. The Bible says there should be no sex outside of marriage. More on this a little bit later in another lecture down the road. But, I mean, just look at the way it's stated here. Let the marriage... Let marriage, rather, as an institution here, as a thing, be held in honor among everyone. And I can say that because Hebrews was written to a group of Hebrew church attenders, at least, a lot of non-Christians. But, I mean, we need to, as people of God, knowing that this is a foundational relationship that God set up from the... We just need to all honor this and exalt this. Marriage is important. Culture doesn't think it's as important anymore. But we should. And then, sex within marriage, that's the only context for it. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. The only context for sex. Before marriage, forbidden. Extramarital, forbidden. For God, here's the teeth. And we don't preach, I, just, I don't know, I read people, they just, we don't ever get around to this. I mean, the passages are always, we always have the next shoe to drop. Because, why? We should be afraid. God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Not worth it. Don't do it. And of course, the Bible says you shouldn't have kids outside of marriage. Kids should not be born out of wedlock. It should not happen. Which, of course, unless you're married, right? It wouldn't happen if you're not having sex outside of marriage. Duh, right? That makes sense. And what does the Bible have to say about that? As uncomfortable as it is, because some of you, I'm sure, 
have had children out of wedlock or you were born out of wedlock, but let's just get back to what the Bible teaches regarding this. Deuteronomy 23.2, no one born of a forbidden union, right, which is the terminology for outside of marriage, may enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, you could live in Israel, but when you come into the courts to worship there, not allowed, can't come, even to the 10th generation. None of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, think about that. 10 generations from an illegitimate birth. God says, not going to have that. Can't have that here. Now, again, you could argue for ceremonial laws and the clean and unclean and all of that, but this is certainly a moral issue, and God says because of that moral decision, there is a ceremonial wake, and that wake is to be honored for 10 generations after illegitimacy. I mean, and I could quote you a lot of passages, but Isaiah 57 I thought was an interesting one that you probably didn't read this week. But you, well, we will read it soon, but you draw near sons of the sorceress. Now think about that. That's pretty, I mean... That's a slam, not the kind of slam you hear on the basketball court, you know, in the inner city, you son of the sorceress. But, I mean, that's, that's not nice. You're calling my mother names. Yeah. You're the offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman, the ESV translates it, the immoral woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? He says, it looks like the playground right now. He says, are you not children of transgression and the offspring of deceit? I mean, God says, this, this is a problem when today we have, what, what was the stat? 40, 41% of the children being born outside of the covenant of marriage. I mean, you can look throughout the Bible, and I only gave you a few because I don't know how many we could take tonight of how often this idea of illegitimacy is described in the Bible as something that really is frustrating to God. No kids outside of marriage, no sex outside of marriage. It's an increasingly postponed institution. It's an increasingly postponed institution. The medium age for marriage in 1950, what do you think it was? Men and women. Huh? 22 for men and 20 for women. Okay? 22 for men, 20 for women. I would say if we have people in this auditorium that were married, you know, in the 50s, even in the 60s, um, you probably, if you're still married to your first spouse, that's probably pretty normal even in this room. 22 and 20. Today, what do you think it is in the United, good old United States of America? 29 for men, 27 for women, and it is trending upward. It depends on what year you read the study. It continues to creep up. In Germany, and I just put some European countries up there because we're always seeming to follow their pattern, right? And since my assistant and my executive pastor from Germany, I just thought I'd throw that out. Men 33, women 30. Ireland, 34, women 32. Sweden, men are 35, women are 33. These are first marriages, okay? Think that through. And this is the pattern we've seen. Divorce trends. I mean, all these things, abortion, euthanasia. We just seem to follow this European track, and this is the trend that we have going on here. 35-year-old man, if you met a 35-year-old man who'd never been married in 1950, seven out of 100 would say, oh, yeah, I'm not married. Today, what do you think that is? 26%. This is just huge. 26% of the people, 35 years old, 
never married. It's an increasingly postponed institution. I just want to, you know, the Bible has no numbers in it for us to, to, to catalog. But what's the biblical exp- expectation? Well, we read one passage that gave us a hint. Malachi chapter 2, verse 15. Guard yourself in spirit and let no one be faithless to the wife of your middle age. Underline middle age there when you look that up. Is that what it says? The wife of your youth. The expectation and the pattern in the scripture was that they got married young. Proverbs uh, 2, 16. Wisdom, it will help you be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets her covenant before God. Right? The covenant made before God with her spouse, her companion, in her youth. Proverbs 5, 15 through 19. Drink water from your own cistern. This is, again, another you know, safeguard against adultery. And this is all steeped in poetry in this particular section, right? In other words, have sex with your own wife, not with someone else's wife, not with the prostitute. Flowing water from your own well, it should be gratifying and fulfilling. Should your springs be scattered abroad? I mean, really poetic language, right? Should your streams of water be spilt out in the street? No, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. There it is again, the one you married when you were young. A lovely dear, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. Focus on that and stay that and keep that and make that the reality so that you'll be guarded against adultery. But again, in the middle of this, wife of your youth. We could go further. Wife of you, wife, wife of your youth. Well, when God decides to send his son and incarnate the son to be in a home, He's going to find a couple here that's betrothed, and he's going to entrust his son to that couple. Remember when we preached back there a long time ago now, I guess, Luke chapter 1. Our third sermon in Luke chapter 1 was on Mary. We took each of those characters and we studied the text about those people. Remember what we said about Mary? We said there is, and we did all, I don't know how much research I actually divulged to you, but in all my research and all the work that you can do in trying to figure out how old was Mary, betrothed to Joseph, that God said, here's the couple I want to go entrust the son to. How old was she? Teenager, right? Fifteen was probably the upper end of what we were looking at. Fourteen or fifteen years old. So when you see pictures like this, right, I just want you to say, that ain't it. I mean, how old is that gal? Forty-two? You know, I'm just, it's not, it's not accurate, okay? So pick your, your Christmas cards very carefully. That ain't, that's not it. That ain't a 15-year-old. Wife of your youth. Companion of your youth. It's also increasingly abandoned, and I'll take no time for this. I'll deal with this after we deal with the fall and sin. But you should know that the divorce rate since 1960 is up 300%. Divorce rates today for first marriages, depending on who you read and what poll, Gallup, you know, Pew Research, whoever it is, 41 to 50%. Second marriage is 60 to 67%. Third marriage is 73 to 74%. Why bother at that point, I'm thinking, right? And of course, I don't have to get into this, but God says stay married. And we already dealt with that passage, Matthew 19, 6. It's an increasingly postponed, uh, well, forsaken, indirect. What was the word I used on the letter A? What, what was it? Bypass. That was the word. <laughs> I searched for that word today because I was like, well, how can I say Bypassed. It's, it's, uh, it's increasingly postponed and it's increasingly abandoned. 
And we need to say, wow, marriage is supposed to be held in honor by all, certainly among the people that are instructed by God's word. Current state of procreation. Let's talk about that for a few minutes. It's in decline in America. Uh, it's not an exciting book, but I see I'm, I'm running short on time, so I'll have to fly through some of this. But if you want to read on birth rates, this is a non-Christian guy. Uh, but it's a, I think even if you just read the first three chapters, the first chapter is it's well written, and then after that it seems to go downhill. And I don't mean to bash the book. Um, I shouldn't even have said that. But the first chapter is humorously written, and it's called What to Expect When No One's Expecting, if you want some interesting reading. And he's a demographer. You know, he, he does you know, demo, demographics and stats, so you can tell that by the fourth chapter. You're like, you know, you don't want to go to dinner with this guy. All he'll do is quote stats at you. But the beginning is well written, and it's an interesting book about declining birth rates around the world. But certainly in America, and he starts with a great story about pets and people in this town in America, and it's really interesting. But you need to know this. Birth rates in the United States have been dropping for the last 15 years. Okay? It's at the lowest recorded level as a normal in the United States birth rate. From 2007, it's accelerated. It's falling faster than it's ever fallen at record speed. A population needs 2.1 babies per couple just to keep up its current population. Are you following that? If people don't, we don't let anybody in the borders of America and no one leaves to go to another country to keep our population steady, you need 2.1 babies per couple on average. Okay? Let's do some comparisons and see what's going on in the world right now. In the United States, we, you talk about the charts, you know, in, in high school that you're drawing. We're right at that point. We are dropping quickly, and we're right at the point, at this particular point in time, of 2.1. And since that study came out, I bet we're at 2.0 at least, if not 1.9 right now. We are at the point where Americans are starting to become, at least if, in America, we don't let anybody in, we don't let anybody out, in, in decline. Now, again, Europe always seems to be setting the pace for America. In France, it is 1.9, or at least it was a few years back when this research came out. In Australia, 1.7. In the UK, 1.6. Are you tracking this now? That's a serious decline. In Canada, it's 1.5. In Germany, it's 1.4. Japan, 1.3. In Italy, 1.2. And Spain, if you know any Spaniards, get their picture because they're going away. 1.1. Think about that. How, you mean, that means in one generation you've cut the entire population in half. You know, everybody was talking, it's like the old, when you were reading Time Magazine and they were telling you uh, that the world was going to be frozen by, you know, in 1990, remember, you know, I don't know if you remember that, but the scare used to be it wasn't getting hotter, it was getting colder. In those Issues of time and Newsweek and all that. The, the thing was overpopulation. Do you remember those cries? Overpopulation. Now, again, if you still believe that, you have not read anything current on birth rates. There are massive concerns in the world about trying to make sure these countries that care about themselves are trying to bolster birth rates all around the world because this is the trend. And America is falling quickly behind these, these countries. Now, these are the kinds of industrialized nations that have, by the way, I just want to point this out, a Christian something, at least in terms of a Judeo-Christian flavor to at least their laws and all the rest. But when it comes to birth rates, it ain't all bad news around the world. 
Some people are having babies. Let me give you some of the countries that are having babies. Yemen, birth rate is 6.6. Afghanistan, it's in the news every day, 6.7. Somalia, 6.8. Mali, 7.4. Niger, 7.5. I just want to put some numbers next to these. 99, 99, 99, 88, 97. What do those numbers mean? What do those numbers mean? Percentage who are adherents to Islam, just so you know. Islamic countries, just making an observation now, are, are really good at having babies. They're, not, they're, they're having a lot of them. Two to one, three to one, four to one, five to one. To the industrialized, Christianized, and by Christianized, of course, I don't mean in a biblical sense, but in a cultural sense in nations. So when you see these kinds of things on the news... Islam will dominate the world, right? This is in the news every day, right? I'm thinking, when you see that, I'm thinking, of course it will. Of course it will. Will it not? Just play the numbers game out for, for 40 years. Yeah, I mean, these aren't small gatherings with just a few people. When you see the kind of anti-Western and anti-American stuff that goes on in our world, you, I'm not getting into geopolitics. I'm not talking about policy. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm just talking about cultures in, in clash. The cultures in clash have one side having less and less and less children and the other side having all kinds of children. Play that out 10 years, 30 years, 70 years. Current state of procreation, at least in America, and the church unfortunately has just like an ox has followed along with the world, is, it's, it's not in good shape. Our, our nursery should be busting at the seams, and they're not. I mean, they're full, because we have a big, busy church, but... All right. Children are increasingly postponed. They're not only... The birth rate's not only going down, but when you have them is changing. Age of a first-time mom. What do you think it was in 1970? 21. 21. In, 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 in 2014 today, 27, depending on the, the website you're reading and the, the, the research that you're reading. You know, I'm not just reading websites by, you know, Tom's blog. I'm looking at, you know, uh, reports that are put out. And, I mean, it's, it's on the rise. In the UK, they cracked this number just recently. What do you think the first-time mom average is? 30. It was in the headlines. Right? That was the new norm. Your first kid was at 30. Now just think about this. We're following those patterns. Postponing childbearing, just like we're postponing marriage. What's the biblical uh, expectation? Well, I read this one early on. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children. Do you remember the rest of that one? Of one's youth. Now, that would make sense. Certainly is the pattern in the scripture. So again, back to this, not just as a couple betrothed, but our 40-year-old gal. There was one, and my wife showed me this uh, movie. I don't even remember which one it was. I'm sure you'll know it. Those of you are into that stuff. But they, they had the Mary character, and I, I smiled, and I said to her, you know, finally there's a movie that is depicting her at least a lot closer to reality. I don't know if you saw that, but this was the gal that played Mary, who looks like someone in our junior high ministry. And I thought, well, you know, that, that is it. And I'm thinking... Jesus, you could have chose, or God, you could have chose anyone to entrust Jesus to 
and you entrusted Jesus to a teenage um, womb. That's interesting. Well, it's cultural. And God doesn't care so much about being very careful to not step on cultural toes. Have you noticed that? It was cultural to sell things in the lobbies there in the courtyards of the temple. It, he, he, was very, he didn't want anybody to be offended by his differing view about what goes on in the, in the temple there, right? Not. Thank you. Uh, natural theology. Let me vent here about natural theology a little bit. Now again, I'm not making, I'm not making any point by the numbers that are up on the board, but... I mean, this is logic and do your research, right? The sex drive in our children, right, kicks into gear, fires up on average at 12 or 13 years of age. Menstruation begins at 12 or 13 years of age, okay? Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to get our junior high ministry to start a wedding chapel, you know, and have children being married off, but I am saying, let's just think natural theology now, natural revelation. What does the natural law say to us? Well, to look at the trends of older moms, let's just think about what happens to these babies when moms are aging. Let's just look at some basic benchmarks. The risk of Down syndrome. The risk of Down syndrome at age 25, right? Which, of course, Down syndrome is three copies of the 21st chromosome. This is, you know, just one of the common chromosomal mistakes. And you could take, you could track things like trisomy 13, trisomy 18, and other chromosomal defects in this, not to mention spina bifida and all the other neural tube defects and things like that. But you do understand, you know, we're going to see this chart build itself. Age 25, Down syndrome, just as a marker for this. One in 1,250 births you've got at age 25. So if your daughter gets married and has a child age 25, her odds of having a Down syndrome child is one in 1,250. At age 30, which is now average first child, first child in the UK, one in 1,000. At age 35, okay, it's one in 400, okay, at age 40. And I should say, after 35, now you have one in four and a half to five women are having children after 35, okay, that's pretty average now, you have a chance of one in a hundred of having a Down syndrome child. If you have a child age 45, it's one in 30. If you have a child age 49, right, it's one in 10. I mean, just building a chart like that, you should say, well, wait a minute, what does natural theology say about when you should have a child or when your daughter should get married and have a child? If being fruitful and multiplying is still a resonant command, well, probably younger rather than older forget the star. Risk of miscarriage over 35? 35 to 39, 20%. 40 to 44, 35%. 45 and over 50%. Half the conceptions after 45 miscarry. More, more goodies for waiting after age 35. Infertility problems, one, one third right, of those 35 years and older. Gestational diabetes, twice as likely. High blood pressure, market increase in the studies were different. Uh, placenta problems, twice as likely. Uh, premature birth, significant increase, and there were conflicting numbers on that. Stillbirth, two or three times as likely, depending on what you read. Natural theology is very clear. Older is not better. All right. 
Again, all I'm trying to say is what the Bible says is the pattern. The expectation is you get married young, you have kids young. Oh, my kids aren't ready. I could go off and I had some notes to prompt me on this to talk about fear-based parenting and concerns about your kids. And I get back to Azub and, and Debak leaving and cleaving, but I have no time for that. But pretend I ranted for 10 minutes about the things that keep you from saying, yeah, that makes sense, let's do that. I don't want them to get divorced. I don't want to make the same mistakes I made. There are so many things we could address in that. I'm just saying we, we're moving with our culture and not in keeping with scriptural mandates. Jesus and the question of singleness. Jesus was single and promoted singleness. We know that. Da Vinci Code was wrong. Dan Brown is not right. I preached on that several hours. You can go back if you still have any question about the Gnostic Gospels and Mary and was he, you know, was he married to Martha or what was going on there. I've dealt with all of that. You can look that up. Matthew 19, 9 through 12. Jesus says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. There's one of the exception clauses. We'll deal with it when we deal with marital problems and aberrations after we discuss the fall. But after saying that, the disciples go, man, if that's the case, you mean that ball and chain, I'm stuck forever, welded together, crazy glue, I can't get out of it. Is that what you're saying? This is a, a permanent relationship? Well, then, heck, man, it'd be better just to skip the whole thing. Better not to marry. And he said, no, come on, guys. Not that bad. That's not what he said. Not everyone can receive that statement that you just made. That it'd be better not to marry. But only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who've been so from birth. That's the way they were born. And there are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs, look at this now, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of, of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, let him receive it. Okay, so Jesus was single and promoted singleness. We've got to think this through now. Well, we'll get to that. Let me do that in a second. The Bible says singleness is a gift. The one, it is given. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we don't have time to look at that because we're out of time. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, very clear that one man has one gift, another man has another gift. And the context is one man has the gift of being married and God gives them a spouse. And the other one is content being single and doesn't burn with desire to be married. So it's a gift. It's an enablement. And not everybody has that. And as he says in the context, if we'd had time to study it, we would study it together. But the idea of uh, contentedness in singleness indicates the gift of that and we talk about that another time. Just talking about singleness in light of a message about being fruitful and multiply clearly doesn't fulfill the command to be fruitful and multiply. Right? It supplants that general command to be fruitful and multiply. And they use the modifier general because we stated it that way. You don't have an aviary. You don't have a, you know, an aquarium necessarily. So you're not exercising your dominion. You're not making dolphins jump in your pool. You're not training, you know, lions. So, you know... We recognize the general command to humanity, the specific command to Ham, Sham, Japheth, and Noah, and Adam and Eve, but we, we recognize that this isn't something that we'd say everyone has to do, because clearly Jesus, the perfect one, comes, and he doesn't do it. And he says, if you do not do it, you don't do it for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, which is exactly what 1 Corinthians 7 says, and if we had time, we'd be looking through those verses, particularly verses 32 through 38 in that regard. And as, as far as letter B goes and uh, letter A, we'd be looking at verses 1 through 9 if we had more time. Okay, so 
You got that? And I, I got more to say on that another time. Singleness. Kingdom singleness is what I call it. If you can be content being single, Jesus says you should prefer it. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 7. One more thing. It's important. I want to rush to it now with a few minutes left. The question of birth control. Birth control. Letter A. The norm is children, not childlessness. The norm is children, not childlessness. The people that fight me on this are usually people that are young and, you know, they're loving the double income, no kids, and they like the freedom, and I'm not really into kids, and we got a dog, and so, you know, all these reasons. My response just as a pastor now, now that I'm so old, uh, and, and I feel more emboldened to say things I wouldn't have said earlier, I know that's hard for you to believe, but in terms of practical theology, the things I wouldn't have said earlier, but I say now, and I say this usually to people that talk to me that way, I say this, I, I, I really cannot think and I've been pastoring, you know, bigger churches my, my whole, you know, career, if you will. I don't think I've ever met a single couple who didn't at some point, they started saying that, didn't at some point reverse that thought. One or both of them. And usually both. And at the time where they get the epiphany that, you know what, we do want kids after all, it usually is that they're in their 40s or their late 40s. So... I try to say to younger couples who tell me, you know, we're not going to have any kids. Not only do I want to say, hey, for one, the pattern is children, not childlessness. Uh, I, I want to remind them that I don't know of anybody who's gone through the process. And again, you may be the exception to that. I guess we, get to, we need to get to know each other. Um, but the people that I know that start out that way in their 20s usually end up in their 30s or 40s changing their, their view. And it becomes a sad shift in their thinking. All right. The norm is children, and we've dealt with that enough. Procreation may be postponed or limited on the same principles as singleness. Procreation can be postponed or capped. That's what I mean by limited. That's, that's not a word I didn't want to use in that sentence. But you know what I'm saying. I've reached my quota here. My quiver's full. If you want to stop having kids, you don't want to be the Duggards, if that's the case. Okay, I understand that. It can be capped, but it needs to be capped on the same principle as singleness. Now think this through. When the Duggards or the people like them get up and say, well, you know, this is God's thing. We just let God do it. And if God gives us the gift, then that's the thing we do. And we just let it happen. And, and so we don't think about it. Um, if you say, well, I'm thinking about it because I've had five now and I'm, you know, I, I don't want to have any more. Or three, and I don't want to have any more. Whatever your thing is. You need to make the, the process the same as you, as you think through the process of Jesus talking about singleness. He talks about, now think about it, he's a man, he's got all the equipment to get married and bear children. I hate to put it so crudely, but think about that. He could have children. Paul could have children. Paul's disciples could have children. But he's saying it's preferable to be single for the right reason. So I'm going to, I'm going to put a barrier, if you will, before the natural use of my body... Right? I'm going to put a barrier there and not fulfill its function because there's a greater goal. And the greater goal is the goal of kingdom priorities. Okay? So if the kingdom priority makes you at some point say, you know what? Now's not the time for kingdom priorities. Or now's not another for kingdom priorities. Then I think that's a legitimate, biblical, we're not going to have any more kids. I get that. Or we're not going to have kids right now. Let me add another one. Or on the grounds of biblical wisdom. 
biblical wisdom. Our third, and you know, I could tell our story with infertility and lots of years, my wife, multiple surgeries and all of that. But when we finally had kids, and then we, they said, well, if you had a kid now and the pipes are working, then let's have another one, and you better have it fast. And so then we had another one, and John comes along, and then it's like, oh, man, we got two, and you know, they're a lot of energy, and so we better wait a little while. And then it was like, okay, we want another one, and then we have another one, which, by the way, was another several years of infertility. And then Stephanie comes along, and then Stephanie's born with a life-threatening birth defect. And, and then we're like, okay, of course, sent immediately to the geneticist after they were convinced we weren't going to abort our child. And we learn all about the genetic issues and we realize, hey, you know what? Right now we recognize the folly, if you will, of us at our age having another after what we just have been through in this situation. This would not be wise. And I could go through the process and showing biblical wisdom, but here's a reason to say, okay, not going to have another. And that makes sense in this situation. And as we, as pastors, counsel people through that, you know, there's plenty of situations where biblical wisdom would say kids should be postponed or kids should be capped at that number or limited in your case. I get that. Natural theology, general relation. I could talk more about that. We're out of time, but you get the point. Letter D. Selfishness is never a legitimate reason. Selfishness is never a legitimate reason. This non-Christian who writes that book on um, what to expect when no one's expecting, which you know is a play on words of that very famous book, What to Expect When You're Expecting. Um, the first part of this, and he's not a preacher, not a Christian as far as I know. I don't know his story, but it's all about the epidemic of selfishness in our culture. But anyway, never a legitimate reason. Why? Because nothing... Either not having kids or having kids should never be done from a selfish decision about your own situation. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourself, even the children you're going to have. You need to recognize, be fruitful and multiply. God wants godly offspring, just to quote that passage. Why does he make me one? Why am I in this relationship? Well, one of the reasons is he's seeking godly offspring where people can be taught in the admonition and discipline of the Lord. So, I'm going to not worry about my personal ambitions and I'm going to be willing to fulfill this function that God has created and commanded and resonates throughout the Bible now as a married person. Um, Selfishness is never a reason to have it or not have it. And I know a lot of people rush into having children because they are selfish. And I'm saying better change that view because, by the way, the baby will change that for you after just a few weeks. You'll realize you did it for selfish reasons, that was a really dumb reason. And obviously, and we could talk about a lot of things, snowflake adoptions and, you know, uh, whatever, you know, after, morning after pills. But the murder of a child cannot be a form of birth control ever. I cannot make that my form of limiting or postponing the birth of a child. As we said earlier, I think it was last week, post-conception is a biologically attested human. Even non-Christians will tell me that. And it's a biblically sanctioned person. And if it's a human person, it has the dignity of being made in the image of God. And I cannot, after all the chromosomes are in place, even if they're a little bit tweaked, I cannot end the life of that innocent life in quotations as the Bible puts it. It's unbiblical for me, and God will hold me culpable for it. All right. With two minutes to go. A lot left unsaid. Did that whet your appetite? Maybe that will lead you to study some more on these topics and get your kids ready to be married. I don't know. I know I'm going to have a lot of pushback on that one. Let's pray. Before Before you pack up, let's pray. God, thanks for this crew. Thanks for these topics. I pray that... 
no matter what the generation is, that we can stand firm on your word and preach those principles, timeless principles, eternal principles, without fear of our culture or fitting in or contextualizing things for our, you know, uh, the mores of our day. Let us realize you've got bigger plans than whatever America or Europe or whatever part of the world wants to say is important right now. Give us your perspective on all these things. And for many people, I know it's we're past some of these major decisions in our life, but we can teach, we can guide, we can counsel, we can have an influence on our kids and our grandkids. So help us, God, just to incorporate these principles of your word into our thinking and into our wisdom so that we can be conduits and reflections of your truth and your wisdom. Thanks for this night. Thanks for this study in Jesus' name.